All right, grab your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, if you would. First Corinthians chapter nine. We're going to be starting at verse twenty-four um, this evening, in just a little bit when we get started. Um, a couple weeks ago, when we were last together, Paul wrapped up the the previous passage by expressing that. He surrenders his rights, and he says there, not, it doesn't say that he surrenders his rights because of how much he loves the Corinthians. It doesn't say that he surrenders his rights because he knows how much they need it. But rather, it tells us that Paul surrenders his rights because he does so for the sake of the gospel. That he does that for the sake of the gospel. So Paul's main motivation in all things is the spread of the gospel. And so the question we have to then ask ourselves is, as Christians, what good is the gospel to us? What good is the gospel to us? And when I say that, I mean from the perspective of if you are a Christian, you have already heard and understood and received the gospel. Thus, do you really still need it? Had someone tell me one time, you talk about the gospel too much in your sermons. I don't need to hear the gospel. I've been a Christian for you know 50 something years at that point, they said. I don't need to hear the gospel. I already know the gospel. Give me something more. Give me something more than just the gospel. Now, maybe that's your thought. Maybe that's your perspective is you feel like the gospel is very elementary. And as, you know, as the Bible talks about leaving behind the milk and moving on to solid food, like the gospel is the milk and the solid food is, is the real rich theology and the deep doctrines and things like that. And, and maybe that's your perspective, but here's the reality. Apart from the gospel, none of those things mean anything. None of those things have any kind of application to us or to our hearts apart from the gospel, because what is it that the gospel actually tells us? It tells us that we are unworthy and Christ is worthy. It tells us that we are incapable and Christ is beyond capable. It tells us that we desperately need Jesus. And so the gospel is kind of like the, the, the linchpin, the undergirding for everything that we learn. And so we have to keep coming back to it and keep coming back to it and keep coming back to it because it's what everything else is built upon. And if we don't have that, and if we're not reminded of that, we have a tendency to have what Paul described as knowledge that puffs up and not love that builds up. And so Paul, in talking about surrendering his rights, is saying, I do it for the sake of the gospel. And he says that I may share with them in its blessings. 
that I may share with the people who are receiving the gospel, I may share with them in the blessings of the gospel. And the blessings of the gospel is not simply, well, now you have eternal life. Now you have fire insurance, as it were, and you have all the blessings that it was. No, the blessing of the gospel is that we have Christ. And everything else that we see in Scripture, everything else that we study from Scripture, is about us understanding and being more like Christ. And so Paul leads us from there into our passage that we're going to have tonight, which is Paul really digging into this idea of self-control and discipline and how those things really are essential components of being in Christ. So if the gospel leads us to surrender our rights for the sake of bringing the gospel to others, then the gospel also leads us to this place of spiritual discipline or spiritual self-control And it helps us to understand that this is the evidence of us actually being in Jesus Christ. It's the evidence of us being in Jesus Christ. And I want to make sure that I say that very clearly. Because self-control or spiritual discipline is not the work that makes you in Christ. It is the outflow, the proof of the fact that you are in Christ. And that is an important distinction because our works are useless. They're meaningless. They're garbage. They're trash. They have no value whatsoever. I'm very sorry to tell you that. You might make beautiful artwork or build fancy houses or do all kinds of cool stuff. And when it comes to righteousness, it means nothing. Absolutely nothing. You might be able to quote every, every verse from the Bible, and guess what? It doesn't mean anything for righteousness because the only righteousness we have is in Christ. And the righteousness that we have in Christ flowing outward into how we then conduct ourselves is the evidence of whether or not we are in Christ. So let's look together. First uh, Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 24, and we're going to read through chapter 10, verse 13. And this is what it says. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And then going into chapter 10, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. 
We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So the first thing we see is we see a right example of self-control. And so Paul begins this passage by pointing to athletes, right? Do you not know that in a race all the runners run? but only one receives the prize. Now, this would have been a readily understandable analogy for the Corinthians because in Corinth, there was something called the Isthmian Games and they took place right there on the Isthmus of Corinth. That's why they're called the Isthmian Games. It's a tongue twister. And it's a close cousin to the Olympics. So they had these athletic competitions and they would do all these things. And so when Paul was there, this happened every two to four, every two years, every four years, they'd have these games. And so Paul probably was there at some point while they had these. And he was fond of using cultural analogies to help them understand. So he points to that in a way that they would understand. And he says, they all run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. So he's wanting them to understand that the way they conduct themselves can be likened to an athletic competition. And so he says, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. An athlete, particularly this level of athlete, they live a life of discipline. They live a life of discipline. They watch what they eat. They watch how much they sleep. Some athletes, I know Michael Phelps, sleeps in a hyperbaric chamber every night. I don't think he does anymore because he's retired, but when he was competing, he slept in a hyperbaric chamber every night. And he got a large amount of sleep and he had a massive number of calories, healthy calories, so that he could compete at the highest level. As athletically talented as Michael Phelps is, he couldn't just roll out of bed and win gold medals in the Olympics. It takes training and it takes long-term training. A lot of these athletes have trained for their entire lives. These ladies who participate in the gymnastics stuff, they start gymnastics when they're Evelyn's age. I look at my daughter, she can barely walk without banging her head on the wall. And these kids are two years old hanging off the high bar and jumping off the beam and doing all this crazy stuff. And they've done it their whole life. They exercise self-control in all things. One of the funniest things to me is that every year when the Olympics roll around, there are a bazillion commercials for McDonald's because McDonald's is the official food sponsor of the Olympics. As if any of those athletes are eating at McDonald's. Because even their healthiest options are not healthy. And you're not going to see world-class athletes pulling in the drive-thru saying, I need a Big Mac, please. Because they have self-control, which is hard because Big Macs are delicious. So they exercise self-control in all things. And so 
Paul is saying, consider yourself like an athlete. But here's the thing. They exercise self-control in all things. They shape their whole life around this competition. And what do they get? At the Isthmian Games, they got a wreath made out of pine needles. I could go outside in my front yard of my apartment and make myself a wreath out of pine needles. That's what they got. It's garbage. It's kindling. It's nothing. But that's what they got. They got this wreath, this perishable wreath. So Paul says they do all of that to receive this perishable reward. But we, you, you are pursuing a reward that is imperishable. It's imperishable. Do you know why that is? Because our reward is Christ. And Christ has no end. And so that's the reward that we get. And yet we treat our spiritual lives like they're not that important. Some of us have hobbies. Some of us are really good at certain things. We have invested a whole lot of time in those things. Do we invest that much time in our spiritual life? Do we invest that much discipline in our spiritual life? We should. We should. Because desires are perishable. I like to play golf. I'm not good at it. I'm really bad at it, actually. I like playing. It's fun, but I'm terrible at it. But there's going to come a day where I can't play golf anymore. I just won't be able to. I'm already kind of, I'm already kind of there now because I'm poor and have children at home. And my wife isn't too fond of me on Saturday morning saying, I'm going to go play golf for the next five hours. And she just goes, you what? <laughs> and I'm kidding. She would let me if I asked her, but I just, I don't have time. I let that go. And there's going to come a point where I just will be physically unable to. There's going to come a point where I'm going to be physically unable to play the drums anymore. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. I'll never have to do it again. <laughs> what a day of rejoicing that will be. <laughs> oh, you got Stephen. He's good. Now, the point is, my desires are perishable. They have a shelf life. They have a shelf life. They're gone. And therefore, we have to be really mindful of the way that we pursue them. We have to be really careful, Christians, how we pursue these things that have a shelf life. If we elevate them above Christ. I know whole families that skip church regularly because their kids play travel soccer. Who cares? You ain't going to be Pele. Your kid ain't never going to be world famous playing soccer. I'm sorry, it's not going to happen. Come to church, worship Christ, because that's what matters. Soccer's dumb anyway. Bunch of people running for no reason, flopping on the ground. Not even hitting anybody. What a waste of time. I'm sorry, I got on my soapbox a little. I apologize. So, Paul says in verse 26, So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. So he wants you to understand that you should, as he says earlier, when he says run that you may obtain it, the idea here is that you should strive to win spiritually. Now, not to say you should make sure that you're more spiritual than the people around you. 
That's not what he's saying there. But he's saying that you should pursue this like you're gunning for first place. You're not saying, how close can I get to sin? You're saying, how holy can I be? That's the idea here. You should strive to win spiritually. And so he says, you don't run aimlessly. You don't box as one beating the air. So if you want to be a runner, if you want to run a marathon, you're going to start a training program. You're going to make sure that you build up to where you can run the full distance of a marathon. You don't say, well, I'm going to run a marathon, so I'm going to go outside and run around my block one time every day for the next four days, and then I'm ready. Would you? You would probably fall over really quickly. You don't run aimlessly. You don't box as one beating the air. When guys are training for these boxing matches, they have sparring partners. They're hitting bags. They're encountering resistance, and they're not running around just punching the air like, oh, yeah, I'm the world champion. That's not going to help you. Pursue things that are going to build you up, not just running aimlessly. So in the context of our spiritual life, that might mean having a dedicated Bible reading plan. Instead of just putting your Bible on the table and flopping it open and reading five verses that you come to in whatever book you're in. It might mean having a set schedule where you dedicate time to read and pray every day. Don't pursue Christ aimlessly. Don't float around in the breeze and hope everything works out. Now, he says, I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So people have taken this verse and kind of said, well, you have to just punish yourself. You have to physically abuse yourself to try to, to, try to root out sin. That your flesh is a literal thing that you have to beat into submission. You have to make it your slave. That's not what Paul is driving at here. Paul is saying that when he, when he talks about your body, he's talking about the spiritual idea of your flesh. So like in Romans 7, the things I want to do or the things that I don't do and the things I don't want to do or the things that I do. He's giving you the idea that you make war against that. You fight against sin every moment of every day. You don't let any thought go. You take every thought captive and you fight against that. That's what he means when he says, I discipline my body and I keep it under control. You don't let your flesh win. And so he says there, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now, this is another section, that, another, uh, another verse that has caused confusion. Paul is not saying, I can be a Christian and then I can fall into sin and then I'm not a Christian anymore. It's not what he's saying. 1 John 2.19 tells us, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. And Matthew 24, 13 tells us, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Salvation is not something that can be lost, but it can be shown to be false. It can be shown to be false. In Philippians chapter two, Paul says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 
For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So Paul is saying there in Philippians, he tells them to work out your own salvation. But who is it that's working? It's God. God is changing their will and God is changing their works. And so when he says, work it out with fear and trembling, he's telling them, examine yourselves. Because if you are sinning unrepentantly, if you are sinning without regret, without remorse, there's a serious problem there. You really need to ask, am I really saved? And so Paul is not speaking in a linear sense where he can be saved and then be disqualified. Paul is speaking in a general sense where he says, I might be preaching, but my sin will prove that I am disqualified, even when he was preaching. Does that make sense? I want that to be really clear because we don't need to live our lives in the fear that we can have our salvation yanked from us but we do need to live our lives with the recognition that we need to be constantly checking our hearts. Constantly. Not in fear, not in terror, but in honesty. Don't justify your own sinfulness. That is the worst thing you can do. But truly examine your heart. And if you don't trust yourself to do it, ask somebody who knows you really well. Ask your spouse. They'll tell you. They should if they love you. And if your spouse won't tell you, ask me. I'll tell you. And you can tell me. And this ties into what Paul is talking about in chapter 10. This is not a good chapter break. We've talked before about how the verses and chapters were added in later. This is a bad chapter break. This is a bad chapter break. Okay, because this is a continuing thought from where we are. So we get to, to chapter 10. And so what we see here is we see that we should not give in to idolatry. Because Paul is saying all of this to make them aware of the reality of what it means if they don't have self-control. He says, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now, as an aside here, I want you to notice something. Paul, speaking to the Corinthians, who are Gentiles, he calls them brothers in a familial Hebrew term, a familial Jewish term, calls them brothers. And then he says, our fathers, speaking of the patriarchs, the forefathers of the nation of Israel. And he tells them, he tells these Gentiles that they are our fathers. So it's important to understand here that Paul is referencing our shared Jewish heritage with the nation of Israel. Okay. So here's the reality. Okay. Paul in Romans talks about how not all who are descended from Israel are really of Israel. And he talks about how the Gentiles have been grafted in. So what he wants us to understand is that the church is Israel. And Israel is the church. This is the 
It's not replaced, okay? The church does not replace Israel. Israel has not disintegrated or vanished or anything like that. This is the continued perfect fulfillment of Israel. That's why Paul talks about the Gentiles being grafted in to Israel. That's why Paul talks about the circumcision that matters being the circumcision of the heart. It's an issue of faith. Okay, so make sure you understand that those are not two distinct entities. It's not Israel over here and the church over here and never the twain shall meet. All right, we're talking about a, a, a body of believers that has been brought into Israel to fulfill what Israel always was supposed to be. A body of believers who have faith that God would send Messiah to save mankind. Make sense? All right. Now, moving beyond that. He wants, to, he wants the Corinthians to understand that all of these people got the same spiritual blessings, right? They all lived under the same cloud, and that cloud is a reference to God's presence that was among them, that was dwelling within them, that was leading them and guiding them through the wilderness, okay? They all lived under the cloud, they all passed through the sea, speaking of the Red Sea, where God made a way of escape for, for Israel to leave out of Egypt and then crash the waters down over the armies of Egypt. They all had the same spiritual food and drink. So remember in the wilderness, God provided for Israel. Manna came down, quail came down at a point. And he also had a rock, a literal rock that followed them that water came out of. This was a spiritual thing that God was miraculously providing for them. And he goes so far as to say that they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So they were all brought into this covenant with God and experienced the same covenantal spiritual blessings that where God was miraculously supplying their needs, and he, Paul makes sure to point out that the rock was Christ. So who is it all along that has been the provider for the nation of Israel? Jesus Christ. So again, there's that link the Gentiles brought in, right? There's that same link. The rock was Christ. But we get to verse 5. Nevertheless... With most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So we see people experiencing these things of God on an everyday basis. I mean, when you think about the manna, the manna is a miracle in and of itself. You wake up in the morning and it's there. And you go out and you gather exactly what you need for the day. And every single day, if you have too much at the end of the day, you can't keep it. There's no leftovers. It all spoils. Except... When you go out on Friday and you take enough manna for Friday and Saturday and then it doesn't spoil and it's good all day on Saturday and if you still have some left at the end of Saturday, then it goes bad. That is a miraculous thing that this happens every single day. Water comes out of a rock. I don't know if any of you have ever been able to get water to come out of a rock. I have not. Maybe you're more skilled with rocks than I am, but I've never been able to get a rock to spit out drinkable water. And yet, 
Here's Israel. And so they have these things happening. They saw the Red Sea part right in front of them. They saw God crush his enemies right behind them. They had God in their midst, and yet they did not worship God. They did not obey God. They did not truly follow God. And so what happened? It says they were overthrown in the wilderness. Another translation of that could be that they were brought low. They thought too highly of themselves and they were brought low. Paul goes on and he says, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Over in Romans chapter 11, verse 17, it says this, excuse me, but if some of the branches were broken off and you, speaking to Gentiles, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who supports the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. And that is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you. Provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? So here again, Paul reinforcing this idea of the Gentiles being grafted in. And he says... Don't be arrogant toward the branches that have been cut off because they were cut off because of unbelief. And if you have unbelief, you're going to get cut off too. Don't presume that you are now a natural part of it. Don't presume upon the kindness of God that your unbelief will go unchallenged. So these are examples written down for our instruction that we would obey God. So what are these examples? Well, it references the golden calf in Exodus. He says... Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That is a direct quote from the book of Exodus, where the Israelites were worshiping a false god that they made out of rings and jewelry. Remember, this was the jewelry that they were given by the Egyptians when they were about to leave captivity. God said, go ask your neighbors for stuff and they'll give it to you. So they go and the Egyptians are like, here, take all this gold, take all these precious stones, take it, just have it. It's all yours. Please take it. And they go into the wilderness. And while Moses is up on the mountain getting the law, they're like, hey, take all this stuff that God miraculously provided for us, melt it down, make it into an idol that we can worship. And so they do it. Aaron does it. And they're all like, this is our God. He got us out of Egypt. Hooray. Yay, God. 
I can understand it because do you know what it was? It was a pretense. It was a pretense for them to be sinful because that's what they were doing. They were just having a big sinful party. That's all they wanted. They didn't really think this was their God. This was a thing that gave them license to sin however they wanted. The real God said, you have to be holy. This fake God doesn't say anything because it's just a fake God. And they could do whatever they want, and their fake God's happy with it. That's all it was. It references times that the Israelites, despite having their needs met, are repeatedly killed in the wilderness of God by God because of their unfaithfulness. Israel was so unfaithful that out of a nation that likely numbered around two million people, two men and their families got to go into the promised land. Think about that. About two million people left Egypt. Two guys and their families got to walk into the promised land. All the rest of them died in the wilderness, including Moses. They all died because they did not obey God. So Paul is saying, listen, you need to understand this is what God does with sin. These were his chosen people. These were the people he miraculously saved. And he killed every last one of them. So take heed lest you fall. Don't think because you presume that you are in Christ that God will not destroy you too. Paul wants you to understand when he says take heed lest you fall, if you continue in unrepentant sin, if you sin without any desire to repent, without any guilt over your unrighteousness, you are not saved. That's what Paul wants you to understand. Because Christians feel a desire for repentance. Christians feel guilt and shame over their sin. And if you look at your life and all you see is sin that is, and you are unrepentant over it, you don't care, you think you're entitled to it, you enjoy it, you have a problem, a really big problem. But what's the next thing he says? He says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. So sometimes you're going to be tempted. You're going to be tempted and it's going to be hard. But Paul says, you're not special. We all face the same temptations. Christ himself faced the same temptations. No temptation has overtaken you that isn't common to man. You're not special. And what's the very next thing he says? He doesn't say, no temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man, so you can do it. No, what does he say? God is faithful. God is faithful. Remember in Philippians, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We're told elsewhere that we are confident that God is able to complete the work that he began in us. God will complete the good work of sanctification and redemption that he began in you. He will. He will. If you are in Christ, God will carry you through to the end. He will hold you fast 
There is no doubt about that. And so then he says, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21. This is a verse that has been misused and misappropriated and misunderstood. It's really important that we understand what's happening here. What Paul is really referencing here. Because the fact of the matter is, is that apart from Jesus Christ, you cannot do anything but sin. You can't. If you are not in Christ, everything you do is sin. Good deed, bad deed, neutral deed, they're all evil deeds. That's how it works. Because if you are not in Christ, you are in sin, and everything you do in sin is sin. And so when Paul talks about a way of escape, this is what I want you to think about. Numbers chapter 21, starting in verse 4. From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. And we loathe this worthless food. Pause. Notice what they just said. There's no food, and we hate this manna stuff. There's food. If you've raised children, you've heard this before. Can we go out to eat? We have food at home. But I don't like that food. That's what Israel is saying. There's no food, there's no water, and we hate this manna. Why have you brought us out here to die? Now, God made them a promise that he would give them a promised land. They don't, have, they don't trust God. They don't have faith in God. They are grumbling and speaking against God. So in verse 6, what is that? What happens? Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. I don't like snakes, but I suspect that I would hate fire snakes even more. <laughs> the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, as fiery snakes are likely to do. So that many people of Israel died. Self-fulfilling prophecy there, right? Why has God brought us into the wilderness for us to just die out here? And God's like, all right, you want to die? Cool. Fire snakes. And the people came to Moses, verse 7, and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now notice a couple things here. The people of Israel wanted the serpents gone. The serpents aren't gone. The serpents are still there. They're still on fire, and they're still biting people. 
But what has God given them? He has given them a way of escape. He has given them something that they can look upon and be saved. God has given us someone who was lifted up that we can look upon and be saved. The sin is still in us, in our flesh. We still have those same temptations. They're not gone. But what can we do? We can look upon Christ and live. We can look upon Christ and be healed. We can look upon Christ and be forgiven. When Paul says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, he's saying, we all live in a fallen world made of bodies, living in bodies made of flesh that are full of sin. We all face the same struggle. And it's not going away until Christ comes back. But you have a way of escape when temptation presents itself. What do you do? You look to Christ and live. You set your eyes upon Jesus and you are forgiven. You are healed. You are given life. So what Paul wants you to understand is that when temptation comes up and you're tempted to sin, you look at Christ and say, Christ is too valuable for me to sin. The life of Jesus Christ that was given for that sin is too important to me. That's what he wants you to do. That's the way of escape. And when you sin because you will, you look to Christ and you are forgiven. But you know what? There were still people in Israel who were so faithless, who were so sinful that they were bitten by serpents and they died because they wouldn't look at the serpent on the pole. Don't be one of them. God has given you a way of escape, just like he made a way of escape for, e for Israel through the Red Sea, just like he made a way of escape for Israel with the serpent on the pole. He has given us a way of escape. Temptation is not worth it. Self-control for the sake of pursuing Christ is worth it. Take heed lest you fall. Look to Christ and live. Let's pray. Father, we are so unworthy of this great gift that you have given us, this incredible blessing that you have given us in Christ, this forgiveness, this redemption, this sanctification, this justification. Father, I thank you for giving us the righteousness of Christ and giving him our sin. It is the worst deal for Christ, but it is the best deal for us. Thank you, Father, for freely giving your son that we might live. Thank you, Father, for providing a way of escape. And I pray, Father, that we, in our pursuit of Christ, would forsake sin, that we would repent, that we would constantly believe the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ is worthy of far more than we could ever offer. Help us, Father, to hate sin and love Jesus, to look on him and live. And we pray this in his name and for his glory forever. Amen.